Lord, would you please help us now as we turn to your word? But we also want to remember your goodness towards us. Thank you for the offering that was given this morning. We're so thankful for the way you're providing for our church. Lord, you've been good to us. And we pray that, God, as we're going to be taking this time now to focus on some of the aspects of your truth, I pray that you would help me explain it. But, Lord, also you would help us grasp it in, your Je- in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. Can you all see? Mike, do you need the lights off again? Are you happy? What do you think? You don't need to see my beautiful face to see the beautiful screen. Okay. All right. So it's my privilege to carry on tough questions. And this week we're on week three already. I can't believe it. And part of uh, our journey is to do two things. We want to help believers become thinkers. All right. So we don't just go, oh, because I feel like it. I'm a Christian. No, no, no. We have a rational reason for our faith. And the second is we want to turn thinkers into believers. Can I say to you today, if you have an inquisitive mind, love science, have all these questions, and maybe you think that's an obstacle to faith, I want to say, no ways. If you have a thinking brain, our faith loves thinkers because when you, it, it stands up to scrutiny, the Christian faith, man, copes well with interrogation. And so I, this week, uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit like last week about myself to start off with. Um, if you don't know me, I not only am a pharmacist, like I said last week, but I studied theology. I did four years of that too. Very different to pharmacy. And uh, my life's work really is, I, I was going to have a nice photo there of my long hair preaching for the first time, but then I couldn't get it from Sterling. So um, just imagine me with this red shirt. I look a little bit like a girl, and uh, you'll imagine my first sermon. So I uh, want to know why this question is so important for me today, which is why should we trust the Bible if it's so full of contradictions and mistakes? I'm giving up my life to preach something every week that I have to delve into and dive into and test its historicity and coherency and integrity. And let me tell you, after all these years, if I didn't believe that the Bible wasn't God's word, I would not be doing what I'm doing. I could be earning a lot more money as a pharmacist, I guarantee you that. But that's not the point. It's my saying today, I want you to know that I'm invested in this, not because of some sort of feeling, but because of facts. And so let's look at it from recapping next week. Thanks, guys. It's important because last week we looked at the question, does science contradict Christianity? Does evolution contradict Christianity? And it's an important question for today's one, which we're tackling. You'll see it at the bottom of the screen. But we said, after examining science, particularly their theory which explains life called evolution, we can see quite clearly that only still... A supernatural event can explain the universe's existence. Evolution never claimed to explain it and doesn't. Secondly, that science and evolution cannot offer any real answers as to why suddenly out of this dead matter, life just sprung forth spontaneously. The leap is statistically impossible. So it points to a designer having to be at work within creation. And then the last is science and evolution cannot explain the massive amount of information that we need in one little cell to live. I said last week that one human DNA package is three billion letters long. For one cell to exist, that's the amount of information it needs. It's statistically impossible for evolution to explain that. And so not only is it just a designer, it's an intelligent designer. And so we came to the conclusion even atheistic evolutionists will not venture, but they cannot into why the universe exists. They're too scared to go beyond that. But really, at the end of the day, the reason why they won't go there is because the logical conclusion is 
even for evolution to work, there has to be a creator. There has to be somebody who brought the raw material for evolution to come into being. And secondly, to design life out of that. Next slide. So we asked some big questions that again tie into this week's question. Surely, surely, please hear me on this. If the universe was made by design, don't you think you're here by design? If God made everything with such purpose, don't you think your life has a purpose? And if this God is so intelligent, don't you think you can communicate with him? If you get to know somebody that through what they've made, if they can make humans relate and have relationship, don't you think he's a relational God? If he can create humans to communicate, don't you think he can communicate? And surely then the bottom line is, which is the most important thing of all, the biggest quest for your life and mine is to know this God. If he's the one that put us here, we have to know him in order to know why we're here. Next slide. And that's where this comes all together. We said, well, then where does faith come in? Well, we said, surely somebody with a natural brain cannot understand a supernatural God. You with me so far? Scientists say they can only go so far to the beginning of the universe. They can't go beyond. And nature, the study of the natural, cannot help us with the supernatural. That's why there's revelation required. And that's what we're looking at today is God's revelation called the Bible, His Word. Guys, it is so important that you understand the place of this book in the Christian life. This book is called the Word of God. It is called the Revelation of God. And it speaks ultimately pointing to the highest point of God's salvation work, which is Jesus and how Jesus moves that work forward. Next slide. And faith is saying we need to believe God's revelation. That's what faith is. But the question is, how can we believe that this God's, God's Word is really trustworthy? That's what the question is. Is how do we know that this book really can be trusted? And that leads us to this question. Why trust the Bible when it's full of contradictions and mistakes? Now, this book has been scrutinized and attacked and criticized for centuries. And the reason for that is, if people can disprove the credibility of God's word, then they can disprove the Christian faith. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not very satisfied with what I've put together here because this topic has volume after volume after volume. And to try and pull all the information together has been incredibly difficult. So I'm going to try not put you to sleep. Some of you are asleep already, but I'm going to try and uh, not put you to sleep. But uh, I want you to understand from two perspectives. One is, Christians need to know why people object to the Bible being the Word of God. So you need to know why. Secondly, maybe you here, and I want to help you if you have objections around the authenticity of the Scriptures, I want to point out to you why that is unreasonable scientifically. And then I'm going to land on a simple question. So... I have managed to summarize it into seven objections. There are a lot more, but I'm going to try to tackle one at a time quite briefly. Next slide. I won't go through all of them I'm, um, on this slide. I'm going to quickly uh, tackle them one by one. So let's go. All right. Next slide. First objection. I'm sure sometimes if you've maybe had a serious conversation with uh, someone in your life who's skeptical, the first thing they say about the Bible is, man, the Bible is full of contradictions. Ever heard of that? 
one thing in the Bible contradicts another, and particularly they're talking about the first four books of the New Testament called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what they say is that there's different accounts of what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus in each of the Gospels, and so if these contradict, how can they be true? Okay? So I used a very simple one where basically uh, one of the objections is what was really written on the sign above Jesus' head on the cross? As you can read there, all of them gives different accounts. And so really, at the end of the day, is it factual? So I want to tell you a story to explain how I'm going to tackle this. There's a professor from a book by Mark Mittelberg, and he tells a story. It was a very tragic story of how his friend's mother died in a car or a bus accident. She was waiting for a bus, and an opposite bus hit her. And she died. And this friend was told by a very reliable close friend of how it happened. But then a few days later, the grandson of the lady who died said, no, she was in a car. There was a collision in a car. She was thrown out the car and she died on the pavement. Both credible witnesses, how do you know which one's true? And this poor guy was in a dilemma because now he goes, well, what actually really happened? Because the one said this and the other one said this. So what the, he did was he pulled the two people into the room and he heard the facts and the story. It's a terrible story. It goes like this. The grand was waiting, the mother of the, this guy, was waiting for the bus, but this other bus hit her. Someone stopped, loaded her into a car to get her to the hospital, but in the haste had a collision with another car and she was flung out of the car and was lying dead on the side of the road. Both parts of the story were totally correct, but only made sense when you brought them together. You with me? It's the same for the Gospels. I'm standing before you this morning to tell you there is not a single contradiction in the narratives of the Gospels that cannot be explained. One is, why does one gospel say two angels, the other one says one? Why does gospel say two, one gospel say two donkeys, the other one say one? Why does it say one, two men were healed outside of Jericho and the other one said one? If you bring them all together, it makes no difference. You can harmonize the meaning perfectly. Next slide. Let's get back to the sign of the cross. It's quite simple. When you bring all the facts together, it says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That could well have been the sign. And the most important thing, at every point where people point the finger to Scripture to say there's a contradiction, nowhere is it of such a degree that the content of the story is lost. It's like this word or that word. All of them have the king of the Jews, which is the most important thing. That was what Jesus was crucified for, for claiming to be another Caesar. And then we know that from John 19, all three were written in different languages, or the psalm was written in three different languages. So, next slide. I'm not going to waste my time, but uh, this is important. If you're the kind of person that have lots of questions, get this book. I'm ordering it, the big book of Bible difficulties. It looks at 800 different cases where people point the finger at Scripture. All of them are solved. Isn't that incredible? This book was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. Not once does Scripture contradict itself. Next slide. The second objection. Well, then they say, you know, 
Man, these writers, they lived much later than Jesus. This is very popular if you listen to the Da Vinci, read the Da Vinci Code or maybe watch the historical Jesus on, on, on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel. Any of you here have DSTV ever seen that? This is very popular. They say, well, these guys all lived much later than Jesus and they couldn't have possibly known Jesus because they lived in the 2nd to the 4th century A.D. Can I say, one of the worst things for me as a theologi theological student was having to study all the arguments for the dating of these texts. It is so boring. And the thing that you will find is, ever increasingly, the evidence shows all of the New Testament was written by AD 17. Now, why is that important? There's some that say maybe just after AD 17. Nowhere in Scripture does it record the colossal events when the Romans sacked the Jewish temple in AD 70. Don't you think it's amazing? Judaism is the root of Christianity. Not a single New Testament author mentions the sacking of Jerusalem temple. That happened in AD 70. Now, what does that mean for you and me? That means when somebody points the finger and says, these guys didn't know what they're talking about, we say, excuse me, just a moment. Every single person that wrote the New Testament texts either were knew Jesus personally or they approved of those who were writing them. Just think about it for a moment. One guy pointed out, and I believe uh, Jesus' brother James and Jude claim that he's the Son of God. Now, if you have a brother or a sister, the last thing they're going to do is support your claim that you're the Son of God, right? They're going to be, this guy's a snort cop. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Can I just point out to you, every single one of these people lived in the time of Jesus or knew him personally. And read your Bible. Can I say, if you, have, if you have doubts, I want to ask, have you read the New Testament? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 9, Paul says, First, Jesus was revealed to Peter. Then he was revealed to the 12 apostles. Then he was revealed to 500 people, many of whom are still living today when Paul was writing. Evidence after evidence to show that if there was anybody who could have refuted or rejected these claims, these eyewitness accounts, could have done it, but they didn't. Secondly, Acts says, when they're standing before King Agrippa, he says, King Agrippa, investigate these things. These things were not done in a corner. Go and discover them for yourselves. The Christian faith has got nothing to hide. Oh, if you read Luke, verse one, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, Luke says, I have discussed with eyewitnesses everything that has happened in these books, Ex and Theophilus, so that you might be sure of this reason for the hope that we have. 1 John says, we saw Jesus, we touched him, we saw him with the naked eye. 1 Peter, 2 Peter says, these are not cleverly devised myths. If you read your New Testament, these guys are claiming facts. And then over and above that, external non-biblical sources like these historians, Tacitus, Josephus, and Suetonius, there are so many of them, Pliny the Younger, they all prove that these texts are perfectly historical. Isn't that incredible? Skeptics themselves, archaeology, the more they dig, the more they support Scripture. Next one. Objection three. Oh, well, then they say, I hope you don't mind my tone this morning. Bear with me. Now, then you might hear, no, no, the Bible was copied so many times and from so many translations. How can we know that the original script is really the real deal? Can I point out something to you today? Any trustworthy translation of 
the Bible that you can go into the bookstore and buy. They are translated from the original languages, which mean it's not the fact that it was translated from Greek into Latin, into German, into Old English, into English, then finally, no, no, right from the Hebrew and the Greek, these are translated. But I want to point out something to you which for me really blew my mind. Do you know how many manuscripts scholars have of the original text? In other words, copies of the original original, very close to the date of when the first manuscripts were written by the first hand. 5,686. My friends, that is enormous. And that's excluding the 20,000 other copies in Latin and in other languages about that time. The second place is Homer's Iliad, and all he had was 643. And the earliest full version that they have of Homer's Iliad is the 13th century. Can I just put the next slide there quickly? That means the interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. This is what Kenyan archaeologist said. And the last foundation for doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Next slide. I love this quote. Next one. Back, back, back. No, no, next slide. There we go. With perhaps a dozen or 20 exceptions, the text of every verse in the New Testament, listen to this, of every verse in the New Testament may be said to be so far settled by general consent of scholars that any dispute as to its readings must relate rather to the interpretation of the words than to any doubts respecting the words themselves. Listen to this. But in every one of Shakespeare's 37 plays, there are probably a hundred readings still in disputes, a large portion of which materially affects the meaning of the passages in which they occur. Shakespeare, written 300 years ago with the printing press, is less accurate than our New Testament. Incredible. Next slide. If you like heavy reading, get the book's name afterwards. Next slide. <laughs> Okay, the fourth objection is that, you know what, these nonsense stories in the Bible of Noah and the ark and splitting the Red Sea, they're all myths, they're all silly stories. How can they possibly be real? Can I just point out something to you? If scientists can say the universe was started with a supernatural event called a Big Bang, they don't explain it, they just say it exists. Is it so impossible for a God that created the universe to cause his son to walk on water, to split the Red Sea. I could tell a lot about that. To say to Noah, you build an ark in a local flood. No, no, I'm telling you, it's so interesting for me to see how people scoff at the supernatural when we are here by a supernatural event. And this is what the cleverest person, the IQ, highest IQ in the world, Marilyn Savant, said. I think that if it had been a religion that first maintained the notion that all the matter in the entire universe had once been contained in an area smaller than the point of a pin, scientists probably would have laughed at the idea. But they're the very ones who point to it. Next slide. I just have to quickly quote this because I just think it's fantastic. This is an astronomer himself gazing at the stars who struggled with this whole concept of the beginning of time. He was a bit of a skeptic. He says, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. 
He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Uh, next slide. I'll be quick here. There's, there's, the Da Vinci Code uh, talks about this. I don't know if any of you read The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Can I just point out, there's this common myth about, oh, from other religions, the, the god of Mithras, he died and was risen again after three days, and Christianity is just a hybrid religion. It's absolute nonsense. Many, many articles have been written on it, but particularly Ronald Nash and this guy, Professor M. Montero Williams, they have totally disproved that Christianity comes from paganism, from a Greek origin, or from the Middle Eastern literatures. The Bible stands entirely on its own. Next one. All right. Then the other objection is this. I'm sure you heard of this one. This is very popular. Certain books have been left out of the Bible. Oh, the Apocrypha. Oh, I love this one. I couldn't stop laughing last night. I'm sorry. I'm being a bit disdainful. I shouldn't be. But this canon of Scripture, it is so easily discerned. These books, canon means orthodox books. They have certain criteria. One of them is they must be written within the first century AD. Secondly, they must hold together with the historical Jesus and the historical times. And thirdly, they have to contain a coherent doctrine, message. And if you read your New Testament, all of these books all have that. <laughs> There's this thing called the Gnostic writings, called the Apocrypha. And um, they, people say, they should be part of the Bible. Can I encourage you to read them? They'll give you a good laugh. One of them, called in the book of Tobit, I read it last night, part of it, was this guy goes blind because of hot bird poop that falls in his eye whilst he's asleep. I'm being deadly serious. I don't know what kind of poop it was. It must have been seared acidic poop. But he goes blind, and the story is of how this guy, it is just so weird, has to now, like Job, be, suffer because of bird poop falling in his eye. The second one is the book of, of, of Thomas. Where he, Thomas is supposedly quoting these weird sayings. One of them is Jesus saying, don't pray, it's a sin. Don't fast, you'll be condemned. Don't give to the poor, it's sinful. I mean, the whole thing, I, I'm sorry, but I, if you want a good laugh, you can give it a read. But uh, they are clearly totally, totally out of line in terms they're written much later in the second and fourth centuries, and um, they can be dismissed. Next one. Well, then there's another objection, the second last one. How can we say the Bible is right and all the others wrong? Haven't you heard that before? Well, Christians are accused of being intolerant. I don't know if you've felt like that. You feel nervous to say, no, this is the truth. Well, can I point out to you, if you hear and you're a bit skeptical... Can I say, we don't deny that there are some forms of truth in other religions. So in other words, there's good practical advice. And one of the ones they point out is, is Buddha says, do not do to others what you would not have them do to you. And so Jesus comes along a couple of hundred years later and says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And people say, well, look, he stole from Buddha. No, no, it doesn't really matter. That's not what makes the Bible unique. Good advice is not what makes the Bible unique. It is the claims of the Bible. The Bible says in John 14 that there is no other way of salvation 
except through Jesus. In other words, the Bible by nature is exclusive. It's saying that there is no other way that we experience eternal life except through Jesus Christ. And the Bible, I need to point out to you this morning, is not good advice. It is claiming absolute truth. Do you understand that, what I just said there? The Bible's not saying this is good advice. It is saying what's in this book is absolute truth. Now, the first objection is saying, well, isn't that just arrogant? Shouldn't, in this postmodern world, keep our minds open to other options? How can we say that the Bible is the only form of absolute truth in its entirety? Well, if I said to you this morning, London is the capital of the United Kingdom, would anybody argue with me? Anybody here want to argue with me that London's the capital? Tony, you don't want to argue with me? Shouldn't you keep your mind open? Fact is fact. Are you sure? Maybe, maybe it's, you can't have absolute truth. Maybe there's another capital to the UK. Anybody want to keep their mind open? Do there possibly be another one? Why not? Because there's evidence, right? Can I say to you this morning, I don't mean to be arrogant, but I do need to point out to you, when I read what the atheists say, it's not evidence, it's not reason, it's just scoffing. Do you know what scoffing is? It's this ridiculing, they sneer. If you read Bertrand Russell, you read, you read Richard Dawkins, you, you read these guys, they just laugh at the fact that there's possibly a God. There's no evidence there. They sit in their armchair of reason and say, oh man, how can there possibly be a God, you stupid Christians? Let me tell you, the people that have gone to investigate the facts, they're the ones who come to faith. If you ever know Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, here you get this atheist journalist desperate to disprove Christianity. He goes off and investigates the facts, archaeology, history, external non-biblical accounts of, of this historical Jesus. He gets saved. The archaeologist who's digging up all this evidence of historical history in the New Testament, they get saved. Why is that? Because they're not sitting on their armchair scoffing. They're going, here's the evidence. They point to a historical Jesus who lived, who died, and who rose again. I ask you this morning, if the evidence points to this unique Son of God resurrected from the dead, is it wrong to say that the Bible is unique and stands alone as absolute truth when evidence points to its historicity? Are you with me? I'm almost done. Then you can take a break. But can I point out this thing of truth? People died for it. They were martyred for it. They gave up their lives and families for it. This is not something that was a nice idea. This is somebody in that first generation who said, I have seen, I have touched, I am going to die for this person, Jesus, who rose again from the dead. Let me tell you, no movement in history, furthermore, has had this incredible scripture to look at as predictive prophecy. In this book alone, its prophetic predictions are unmatched. You know, the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, tells you how he's going to die. Virgin birth, 
You might say, well, that's just nonsense. How can a guy be born of a virgin? Can I tell you, when you start to look at Scripture, where it points to the date of the, the, where he's going to be born, what line, King David, where he's going to run to, Egypt, where he's going to grow up, Nazareth, how then he's going to be given up for 30 pieces of silver. It just goes on and on and on. The predictive prophecy of Jesus Christ, there's no other book like it. In Daniel, how the four nations are going to come, he prophesies the coming of the Babylonians, he prophesies the coming of the, the Persians, he prophesies the coming of the Greeks, he prophesies the coming of the Romans. No other book in history has shown so many predictive prophecies and already have been so many have been fulfilled. You with me? Friends, can I just point out to you today, this book has got no equal in the history of the world. And my final one today is the objection is this. Isn't it open to any interpretation? Isn't it my opinion versus yours in the Bible? How can there be any sort of truth? Can I point out to you today, oh, what about the cults? What about these crazy guys telling people to drink petrol and do all these sorts of things? The Bible is so easily misused. How can you say it's, it's, it's truth? Can I point out to you today, all the cults that have survived have to alter the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses have to give their own edited version of the Bible. Mormonism has to create its own entire book called the Book of Mormon. All of these crazies, even the Catholic Church, can I just point out to you gently today, the Catholic Church will say the church has to interpret Scripture, not the common person. Ah, but when Scripture was given to the common man, like Martin Luther, the world was set on fire. All of a sudden, when people began to read Scripture for themselves, far from being crazy, nations were changed, cultures were changed, families were changed, entire trajectories of, of civilization was changed through this reading of God's Word. And most of the time, what you will find is the Bible is so clear on its central message. If you read it from start to finish, or if you're somebody who preaches it from start to finish, it's very stable. It leads to people who live rational lives, godly and upright, not cooked in their head, but people who are able to live an upright, noble life that gets the attention of the world. So, my last slide is this. In summary, at the very least today, this Bible, it is the most trustworthy ancient document that history has produced. For all those reasons. But most important, if the Bible is trustworthy historically, then Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is proclaimed as the unique Son of God. That will be next week's question, which Joe can tackle. But the point is this. Jesus himself taught that the Bible is the inspired word of God. In other words, we can have these extra-biblical sources and archaeology that tell us the Bible is accurate and worth reading, but how Jesus tells us it is spiritually accurate and worth heeding. And so I landed today in good time. Last slide, sorry. Can I tell you what the real problem is with Scripture? And I'll say it gently. More often than not, it's not the fact that there's some problem with its scientific or historical accuracy. The problem is there's a problem with the message. And most of the time when you start to talk to, to friends that are, are skeptical, or even maybe that you hear, may I gently ask if that's you, if there's continual fault finding with Scripture and there's an answer after an answer after an answer given, 
what's the real problem? And I'll put it to you, it's not really the fact that the Bible can't be trusted. The fact is it's what it claims and what you might have to change or give up in your life to obey it. Mark Twain put it so well, he says, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. You see? May I just say to you this morning, what the Bible asks you to give up and change, whether that is some sort of sexual orientation, whether it's some form of, of some controversial aspect of, of, of partner or, or the way that you choose to live your life and what you say and what you do and how you live it. I mean, it's countless. The Bible touches every area of life. If you are worried about giving up something and losing out by obeying the Bible, can I say to you, have you read it? Because its promises for the believer far exceed, not just for this life, but the next of the blessing and abundance of God's goodness that pour into the life of the one who submits to Scripture. Paul, who hated Jesus, said, I consider all else rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'll make you a promise today that if you will live according to God's word, which starts with Jesus, you will find yourself more abundantly enriched with life than what you could ever have with the thing that you are holding on to. Jesus said, if any man seeks to save his life, he'll lose it. But if any man seeks to lose his life for my sake and the gospel, will find it. But I want to stop with the Christians here this morning. Can I ask you a question, church? If we believe this is the inspired word of God, and I need everybody to wake up and pay attention. If this is the inspired word of God come down from heaven by the Holy Spirit, if we believe this is divine revelation, what are we doing with it? Can I say to you, never before has the word been so accessible, but never before as a pastor have I observed people neglect it so much. We live practically denying its own inspiration. Can I ask you this morning, if you believe that Scripture is the word of God, how seriously do you take it in your life? Is it just a WhatsApp message that you just read a little scripture? A little pep talk? Or do you believe in this holds eternal life? The only way you will know God is if you'd come to his word as inspired. And we build our life on it as Christians. We give ourselves to its commands. It is the standard and rule and authority of everything in our lives. It even gives us Christ. And that's the challenge today. Don't think of it just as an intellectual argument for those that don't believe. The greatest argument is a person who loves God's word and lives it. 
The greatest argument is the person that understands that they don't have any food without it. That if they neglect it, they neglect it to their peril. If you don't obey what God's word says, oh my friend, there are eternal consequences. When you stand before God one day, he's going to hold you to account. Account to what? Scripture. And so it is to our benefit to live it. It's to our shame to neglect it. We have a golden opportunity as Christians, knowing the truth. Let's live it. Let's enjoy it. Let's eat of it. It's not your degree that's going to make you great. It's not your money that's going to make you great. It's not your intellect that's going to make you great. It's how much you live off the word of God. Because greatness is not this life. It's the next. And here is all of what we need. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. I pray today for those that are in doubt, God, I pray that, Lord, today, I, I pray today that you would show them, show them where their heart lies. God, we are praying today that your grace would flow towards those who are skeptical. Lord, and so much the skepticism is around really obedience, not objection around fact. And I pray that, Lord, they would see this morning that you are the only way. You are the only truth and you're the only life. Life. But I pray for us as your people this morning. Lord, this is so critical. The scriptures are bread and butter. Lord, apart, like your word says, if, if a man lives off your word, becomes wise, becomes mature, he's ready for godliness. He's ready for your kingdom. And I pray would live off your word, not denying it practically, but living off it authentically. I pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.